Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week we have the privilege of discussing hand osteoarthritis. Now hand osteoarthritis is an incredibly common musculoskeletal disease with the prevalence rising steeply with increasing age. The disease is associated with hand pain, stiffness, functional limitation, decreased grip strength, and reduced quality of life. Now, for a long time, hand osteoarthritis was pretty much a forgotten disease, which led to a paucity of clinical trials to guide recommendations, and therefore many of the propositions of previous recommendations were often based mainly on expert opinion. However, in recent years, hand osteoarthritis has attracted more attention and new data have become available on several treatments, including but not limited to self-management, application of thumb-based splints, topical anti-inflammatory drugs, oral corticosteroids, various injectable treatments, and treatment with drugs used more commonly in treating inflammatory rheumatic diseases. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to examine hand osteoarthritis, why it happens, and what can be done about it. And we're joined by none other than Marguerite Kloppenberg. And Professor Marguerite Kloppenberg is heading the osteoarthritis research group of the rheumatology department of Leiden 
University Medical Center, Leiden in the Netherlands. And she started research in the field of osteoarthritis in the Department of Rheumatology and made it one of its key research areas. And the work of her group focuses on the causal role of systemic factors in osteoarthritis and on methodology to evaluate the course of osteoarthritis by both MRI and radiographs with a special attention on hand osteoarthritis. And Marguerite has published over 200 peer-reviewed papers in the national and international literature. Marguerite, welcome to the show and good to see you from some distance away, but I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak to us. Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. So what I usually do towards the beginning of the show, and this is in part selfish because I want to get to know you a little bit better, but also for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better, ask a few more personal questions. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Five words is not so easy. That's a little bit, that's little words. But I would say I, I would describe myself as a doctor or a rheumatologist. I'm an educator, so I'm training young rheumatologists. And I would describe myself as a researcher. And what I really like there is doing pioneering work. But apart from all these kind of things, I'm, of course, also a wife and a mother of a son of 18. So <laughs> uh, I should not forget to mention that as well. <laughs> so your life is very, very full by the sound of this. <laughs> yes, I'm very uh, happy with all these things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, brilliant. Now, from a professional standpoint, can you just tell me a little bit more about what you do on a typical day and what your day job might involve? I work in an academic hospital in a department of rheumatology. And there uh, I combine working in patient care. So I do outpatient clinic and see patients with rheumatological diseases. That can be patients with uh, osteoarthritis, but it can also be patients with rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis or fibromyalgia. It's one of my tasks, but uh, one of the other things I do is research. And of course, as you already mentioned in the beginning, there the focus is totally on osteoarthritis, especially on hand osteoarthritis. And partly I combine that also with my clinical work, but also here I have PhD students in my department and we set up clinical studies, observational studies, but also clinical trials. And an important part of my task is also that I work with young people, young rheumatologists in training to guide them and train them in their program to become a professional rheumatologist. No, that's you. a rather different kind of task palette, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think the mentoring is so fulfilling, isn't it? Uh, training, that, yes. training that younger generation, it's so important. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that with us. Now, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing outside of work? Being outside, so it's nice to do uh, work a little bit in your garden. Of course, I'm living in the Netherlands, so space here is not easy to get. So my garden is uh, rather tiny, but still you can have a lot of time there to get your roses grow. And then I like reading. So I think most of the important things uh, what I do. And what do you enjoy reading when, when you get the chance to do oh, so? Novels. I'm, uh, I like to read novels, but also um, detectives and these kinds of things just for to relax. Yeah, no, it's so, it's so important to have a little bit of balance, isn't it? Now, 
getting into the topic of the day, and you've been really instrumental in leading a lot of the developments around hand osteoarthritis, but I'm just wondering, it's probably helpful to set the context of what we mean by hand osteoarthritis. So I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how hand osteoarthritis is defined and then potentially go into the difference between how that's defined in epidemiologic and other studies versus the diagnosis that might occur in clinical practice. Now, when we talk about osteoarthritis of the hands, then we typically think about a rheumatic disease that affects the joints of the hands, but not all the joints in the same way. So you see, especially that the joints at the end of the fingers, what we call the distal interferential joints, are involved. You see it in the joints that are halfway of fingers, so that's what we also call proximal interferential joints, our interferential joints are involved. And you see it especially in the joints that form the thumb base. Now, what we see there is that patients have pain, patients feel stiffness over there, they have difficulty bending their hands, for instance. And when you look at the hands, and that makes it, I think, also for a doctor, but also for a patient themselves, sometimes even easily to recognize, is that you see that there are bony swellings at these sides of the joint, sometimes with a little bit of redness, sometimes also with a little bit of soft swelling. And especially these types of joints can also be very painful locally, for instance, when you palpate them. For patients, uh, when they have these kind of joint complaints, it really hinders them in their daily activities. It's much more difficult to do easy daily tasks as doing your household, doing the gardening, for instance, what I discussed earlier, but also uh, cooking or lifting objects. This whole picture together is what we call hand osteoarthritis. It differs per person. So therefore, it's not in all the patients exactly the same clinical picture. We sometimes have patients that have more of the bony swellings and do not suffer that much from the pain. On the other hand, you have also patients where pain is much more on the foreground, where the signs like you have these bony swellings is much less present because you can already at the outside see these bony swellings and you can palpate these typical locations. In clinical practice, you can make the diagnosis just by using your history of the patients and do your physical exam. In fact, it's not per se necessary to make a radiograph, for instance, you can do that. It gives you supportive evidence that hand osteoarthritis is present, but that's, I think, for most doctors, not necessary. You can also do it just when you sit in front of a patient at your desk, you can already make the diagnosis. In contrast, I think sometimes when you're talking about the epidemiologic investigations and clinical trials, the criteria that are used aren't obviously just based on the visual inspection, the history, but more off, more frequently than not, you probably get a radiograph, an X-ray yes. rather. Yeah. There you are right, of course. You can do it also in epidemiological studies by clinical means. So by asking questions about the type of complaints people have and about the localization yeah. and about what you see. And there are even a classification criteria that make it possible that you can make a diagnosis in this way. But you are fully right. That's not all. That's um, it takes a lot of time by researchers to do so, and it's also not that easy to do. 
And since you can see these bony swellings, it's a little bit of change in the bone. So it's very visible also on radiographs. That makes it very much possible to make radiographs of the hands and based on what you see there, score whether you see abnormalities that fits with osteoarthritis in certain hand joints. Yes, there you are fully right. Thanks for the clarification. When thinking about the burden of this disease to the community, just trying to understand how common hand osteoarthritis is, can you give us some estimates for the more common joints that are involved and how the burden to the individual and to the community might compare with other inflammatory rheumatic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, for example? Osteoarthritis in general is very common. And then, of course, when we talk about osteoarthritis, it not only, we not only talk about hand osteoarthritis, of course, but you can have osteoarthritis in any joints. Joints that are very known to be osteoarthritis are, of course, the knees, the hips, the big toe, for instance, the spine, and hands and thumb base, or finger and thumb base are another very prevalent location. It's a little bit how you investigate it and what your definition is. If you talk about a definition in epidemiological studies where you really look at whether there are radiographic abnormalities, then at certain age groups, the vast majority of the people have osteoarthritis. When you look at people that also have clinical abnormalities with it, so then it's less. But then already you can also think about percentages above 20% of the population in certain age groups. Many people have signs of osteoarthritis, but they are used to it. And they realize themselves it must be something that has to do with osteoarthritis. I understand it. I can live with it. So they will never see a doctor and they will never visit a physician for it. It's a smaller group of, of all these persons that have these abnormalities that visit a physician for it. And that makes it maybe also for us as physicians and researchers in the field a little bit more difficult to realize how many people exactly suffer from it. That's really helpful. And obviously, just to recap, it's an incredibly common problem. And from a rheumatic disease perspective, oftentimes comparisons are drawn to other diseases that have impacts on the hand. And at least some people have suggested that there are similar levels of functional impairment with hand osteoarthritis as there are in a person who might have an inflammatory rheumatic disease like rheumatoid arthritis. I'm just wondering what your perception of those types of analyses would be? Now, um, as I already mentioned, there is a large variety in the symptoms people experience from osteoarthritis. That can be from very mild to very severe. And uh, we did studies on that. And also in the general population, you see that we diagnosed by these classification criteria for hand osteoarthritis, as I also mentioned earlier, and we looked, for instance, how their quality of life was, that you already saw that also in the general population, quality of life is affected. However, this is in the total population in a limited way. But when we, for instance, do studies in those patients with hand osteoarthritis that visit our outpatient clinic, what you see then, and, and that's of course a selection of patients with a lot of complaints. And if you compare these patients that visit our outpatient clinic with signs of hand osteoarthritis, 
then their complaints are similar to patients with other rheumatic disease of the hands of an inflammatory origin, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or other. And that's uh, also shown in different other populations in other studies. For instance, in Norway, they did this kind of studies. Fantastic. Thanks, Marguerite. Now, just going to move on and talk a little bit about why people develop osteoarthritis of the hand, and in particular, uh, the influence of age and gender and other risk factors. But I'm just wondering if you could expand on why a person might develop osteoarthritis of the hand. That's not so easy. That's, of course, a topic that is under study by many. Age and gender, as you already mentioned, are the most important ones. And then with gender, we mean female gender. What is also an important aspect is genetics. What you very often have, and that's also what I see in the clinic, is that patients tell me, and particularly these are a typical patient, is a, a woman of around 50 years of age and with complaints of the hands. And then she tells me, oh, now it's not that bad, but I foresee that I will become like my mother. My mother is now 80 years and oh, it's terrible. She has a lot of bony swellings and a lot of complaints and a lot of disability. And my sister, she's also developing it. So these kinds of genetic and familial factors play a role. We don't know exactly now what it is. There are some genetic factors that are now found that has not been translated to clinical implications yet, but that's, that's an important factor. And then I think what we also see as a factor is uh, mechanical triggers. So you can imagine that when you have done a lot of work with your hands, that that also can be an, a risk factor. What I always find a very, very illustrative in this sense is that, for instance, and that's of course extreme, but that you have these people that do free climbing and that you see there that there is a lot of hand osteoarthritis. But sometimes I also see patients in my outpatient clinic with, that are musicians, for instance. Musicians do a lot with their fingers and their hands. That's also an important cause. The question, of course, is how you can imagine that these kind of uh, risk factors translate to starting up the osteoarthritis process and how all these different factors interact, which it's order and lead at the end to, to the osteoarthritic signs and complaints that people experience. I think that's still difficult for us and that's some of the things that we try to, to figure out and distangle. Because when we can do that, of course, it will also be much easier to understand how we can influence that and also how we can modify that and how we can prevent the whole osteoarthritis process. But at the moment, that's not easy to do yet. Sounds like a wonderful field for uh, someone who's engaged in hand osteoarthritis research to get, to get involved in, Marguerite. So I really, really look forward to learning more about that. Now, obviously, you said before that hand osteoarthritis is very different from one person to the next. But I'm just wondering if you could generalize a little bit, because I think a lot of people are very concerned about what will happen to their hands, their hand function long term, and what the risk of progression is in a typical everyday ordinary person who has osteoarthritis as best you can cognizant of the fact that there's a lot of variability there now that, that that's an important question and that's a question that i are often asked by patients that visit my outpatient clinic 
And that's also something we researched uh, some years ago. And maybe I have to tell a little bit about the type of research we do in, the, in our outpatient clinic. We ask patients that visit us and that have hand osteoarthritis, which we think as a doctor must be hand osteoarthritis. So it's not per se that they are classified, but it's really a doctor diagnosis. And we follow them over time. And that's also something we did some years ago with another population um, that was a little bit differently organized. But these were especially patients that also had a familial predisposition. They had hand osteoarthritis with also, and also osteoarthritis in other joint sites. But in this particular population, we followed them for more than six years and we looked at the hands and we asked patients what kind of complaints they had, but also we made radiographs. And what we saw after six years is in the total population, there was, when you looked at complaints, not that much difference. So it was not that the pain or function was that much worse over six years. However, that could be misleading. When, when you zoom in to individual patients, you saw that there was a group of patients that did worse. But there were also patients that did not change. And there were even some patients that improved over six years. But it was around 50% that thought maybe I did worse. We did also make radiographs. And then you can score all these bone abnormalities and whether there is the joint space between the joints is uh, getting less. And that says a little bit is how the stage of the cartilage is. And what we also saw is there that around 50% of the radiographs decreased. So um, of the patients and they, they had more radiographic abnormalities. And then of course we thought, oh, now we understand it. It's the 50% that's uh, going worse. That must be also the 50% that have more radiographic abnormalities. But no, there was no association at all between these two groups. And I think that's also good for patients to realize. It's not definite that when you have hand osteoarthritis, that even after six years, uh, you can only foresee that it will get worse. It also can go better. That's the one thing. And the other thing is don't exactly worry about what you see on your radiographs, because what is happening on the radiographs is not associated, especially what's going on with what you experience when it comes to complaints. Yeah, some really important messages there, Marguerite, because I think a lot of people come along incredibly concerned that they're going to deteriorate rapidly over a relatively short interval. But I think, as you say, the majority of people have a steady steady trajectory and oftentimes worry about the appearances on an x-ray. But as you suggest, those x-ray appearances often don't correspond very well to a person's symptoms. Now, we spoke about the diagnosis in clinic before, and you mentioned that it is a clinical diagnosis, so based on taking a history and doing a, an examination. Is there anything more that you wanted to stress there about the need for imaging, or can we move on and talk about managing the disease? From a clinical standpoint, I think these are the most important things. Of course, when you do research to better understand the osteoarthritic process, then imaging, other imaging modalities can be very helpful. When you try to understand what's going on in these osteoarthritic joints, for instance, whether there's inflammation, then it's very helpful, for instance, to do ultrasonography or to do MRI. But at the moment, these are not imaging modalities 
we normally use or commonly use in clinical practice now. Yeah, and I guess based on what you were saying before, given it doesn't necessarily correspond well with a person's symptoms or their functional decline, it probably doesn't make a lot of difference to what you're going to do in terms of managing it. Now, Marguerite, you've been really instrumental in leading the development of new guidelines for the European Rheumatology League, Um, and they came out relatively recently. I'm just wondering if you could briefly summarize. I admit that this is, you know, years of work and lots of material, but I'm wondering if you give some overarching perspective on the recommended modalities of management for someone who has osteoarthritis of the hand. Yeah, this this was a work we did with many experts in the field, especially in Europe, of course. And these were rheumatologists, but and that's one of the points that also comes out in these guidelines that it's multidisciplinary. So there were also healthcare professionals present, a surgeon. And I think that what are important things is that when you talk about treatment, that you should, not, that you should engage different disciplines. So important is that you understand what osteoarthritis is. So what are education and self-management principles? That's an important first step. The non-pharmacological possibilities and treatment modalities are very important. So these are use of braces, for instance, exercise. These are the most important ones. And then when we talk about pharmacological treatments, at the moment they are only directed at pain alleviation. So there are no possibilities at this moment in time, that we have drugs available for disease modification. So that's important to realize. And when we then think about what are the first steps when you think about pain alleviation, then try to do it with medication that can be locally applied. So for instance, topical NSAIDs. However, when this is not really successful, as a next step, for instance, oral NSAIDs can be used However, NSAIDs are not without adverse effects. And the evidence with oral NSAIDs is only for use during shorter terms. So therefore, we advised to do that in the lowest dose for the shortest time frame. I think that are the most important ones. Um, then, of course, there is a lot to do about all kinds of trials with newer medications, for instance, biologicals, what we also use with rheumatoid arthritis or drugs that are also used with rheumatoid arthritis. However, currently there is not enough evidence to use these drugs for osteoarthritis of the hands. Yeah, and just to clarify, NSAIDs are anti-inflammatories. And as Marguerite's suggesting, there are lots of options there that obviously start with education and non-pharmacologic therapies about exercise and orthoses before thinking about the use of medications like topical anti-inflammatories. One of the recommendations there was about injections, which traditionally and historically in many rheumatology clinics have been really widely used. Just wondering if you'd want to make a comment about injections of steroids, the frequency with which they're used, and the efficacy from the evidence that's currently out there. That's a very important remark you made. That's something that really is of interest, I think. Indeed, injections are often done, not only with rheumatologists, but also by surgeons, for instance, plastic surgeons. Unfortunately, there is no evidence at the moment that steroid injections work. 
So there have been some randomized controlled trials in which steroid injections have been compared to fake injections or placebo with, for instance, just physiological salt. And these studies were all negative. Whereas on the other hand, there have open studies been done where patients in a kind of observational manner got these injections and were very positive about it. There are also a lot of doctors that, and experts in the field that have the feeling that in some patients it can be efficacious, especially when there are signs of inflammation. Uh, but the current status is, I think, that we do not know enough there is no evidence that we should use them. Although I would advocate that we do maybe studies, especially in those patients in which we could uh, expect that they work when there is inflammation, that we should investigate whether it could be efficacious there. But we do not know at the moment. But when you look at the recommendation we made in the, in the European recommendations, we therefore formulated it that in general you should not give an injection. However, you can discuss it with your patient in specific situations, especially when you think there is a flare. But to be honest, we don't have evidence for that. Now, just thinking about the implementation of some of those recommendations and how a person with hand osteoarthritis might go about getting information about the disease, about exercise, about the use of splints. Obviously, I think a lot of people around the world might go to a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist, or even a specialist hand therapist, but just wondering how a person might implement those types of strategies for the management of their hand osteoarthritis, other than trying to go to the internet and learn it themselves. I can imagine that it depends a lot on how your healthcare system works, but how we do it in the Netherlands, patients mostly go first to their uh, GP, their general practitioner. Uh, their general practitioner can make the diagnosis, so you don't have to go to a medical specialist for the diagnosis. A GP can do that as well. And a GP can already give advices about the aspect you just mentioned and can make a prescription for a splint, for instance, and can give some advices about the exercises that you can do at home. In the Netherlands, it's so organized that you can directly also go as a person when you have hand complaints to a physical therapist and then get it reimbursed, for instance. It depends a little bit on your insurance, of course. So some people do that as well. And then you first line of contact and information about endosteatritis is via this uh, physical therapist. Then already, I think you get a lot of information as well. In my outpatient clinic, these are patients that are revered by a GP. So you can imagine these are, of course, mostly the patients that have a lot of complaints and the people of the, the patients that get referred, that consult us, there is often also a discussion about the diagnosis. You can sometimes imagine that there is a question whether this is really hand osteoarthritis or something else is going on. That's also something you have to keep in mind. With some phases of hand osteoarthritis, there can be a lot of inflammation and sometimes you have then the question or the, the what we then call the differential diagnosis, whether there is an inflammatory rheumatic disease there. Uh, is it maybe rheumatoid arthritis or is it gout or could it be uh, when you have psoriasis that it is uh, psoriatic arthritis? Now, things like that. 
then you can be referred to secondary care and see, for instance, a rheumatologist to make the differential diagnosis clear. And when people visit our outpatient clinic, we can refer patients to a nurse specialist and an occupational therapist in our center that give people all these information, the education about how to protect their joints, how to use splints and what kind of exercises they do. With regard to exercises, I think, especially with uh, hand osteoarthritis, we often talk about home-based exercise. So people get all information about how they can do the exercise. And what you already mentioned, you can also see on the internet type of exercises you can do. And then with this advice, they go home and do the exercises at home themselves. So it's not necessary, for instance, that you go to your physical therapist every week to do the exercises over there. It's important that you understand what you have to do and that you do it, for instance, several times a day by yourself. Yeah, that's a great and really helpful explanation. I think hopefully we'll make the implementation of some of those recommendations a little bit more practical. Now, at around the same time or shortly after the European guidelines came out, the American guidelines came out with some subtle differences. And I'm just wondering whether you might want to comment on those differences briefly. I think what always strikes me is that they are more, they are very similar, David. <laughs> so... Eternally the diplomatic politician, Marguerite. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, I think there are not that big differences. Yeah. Okay. No worries. So moving on and thinking a little bit more about some of the inflammatory types of therapies that have been used in the management of osteoarthritis for a number of years, there have been some important recent trials, including some of yours, that have looked at the use of steroids, hydroxychloroquine, methotrexate and some other biologics. Just wondering if you'd like to comment on the efficacy and safety of those agents. Yes, it's interesting. Uh, as I already mentioned, in some patients with osteoarthritis and also in some phases, when you have uh, osteoarthritis of the hands, there is a lot of inflammation going on. We also know when you look at radiographs that there are patients that have specific abnormalities, what you see on radiographs, what we call central erosions. And especially these patients have a lot of inflammation going on. And because we saw this inflammation, the hypothesis was that a lot of those drugs that we, that we know that are efficacious, for instance, in rheumatoid arthritis, could also be efficacious in hand osteoarthritis. A lot of studies have been done with all these anti-rheumatic drugs. And you already mentioned we have hydroxychloroquine studies. We have had big ones, one in the Netherlands, one in Germany, and one in the UK. But in fact, to make the short conclusions, they were not efficacious to alleviate pain in patients with hand osteoarthritis. Uh, recently, there has been a study finalized with methotrexate, and also there it was not directly clear that it was um, uh, helpful so that is also not a solution, I think. Several studies have been done that looked into the use of TNF blockers, and that is medication like adalimumab or, or etanercept. The whole idea was that if you give people uh, uh, some injections with this medication, that it would very easily and on the short term alleviate pain. But the studies that have been done have not shown that. We ourselves have also done such a study 
and we followed patients up for one year. And also here, we did not see really short-term efficacy. Uh, however, when we looked in those patients that really had this inflammatory type of osteoarthritis, where you also have these abnormalities, what you can see on radiographs, that on the long term, there was a suggestion that maybe it could be helpful. However, I think we have to know more about that and about its specific type of patients where that could be helpful before that can translate to real uh, clinical applications. That is, that cannot be uh, recommended at this moment. Now, and then finally, we recently also um, finalized a study in which we investigated the efficacy of prednisolone. Prednisolone is a very strong anti-inflammatory drug. And we gave it for six weeks to patients with hand osteoarthritis in a dosage of 10 milligrams per day. And we compared it to a placebo. And what we saw after six weeks that people really had less pain. And we could also see with ultrasonography that there was less inflammation. But sadly, uh, when you stop it, so when you stop the prednisolone, the pain comes back. So it's not sustainable. And now that's, of course, very unfortunate. So then you could, of course, think, should we not give long-term prednisolone? Now, that's not very attractive. Prednisolone is a drug with serious side effects. So that's not something to consider to giving it for a long time, I think. Uh, on the other hand, you can imagine that when you want for a short term to have less pain, for say, sometimes people come to me and say, oh, I'm really looking forward to the wedding of my daughter and I really, this weekend, doctor, I don't want to have any pain to be bothered by it. You can imagine that for such a short time frame, you could help people with a very short course of prednisolone. That's really helpful. Thanks, Marguerite. Now, I'm, as always, running a little bit over time and not managing the time very well. So I'm just going to skip through a couple of topics and I guess recommend people go to the European Rheumatology Guidelines, which we'll put the link on the show notes, specifically to look at the evidence practice gaps and research needs, which you included a table in the paper there, which I think is really, uh, really informative and I think helpful to the field. Sorry to interrupt you there, but maybe it's nice then to give, there is also a, a little film with it on YouTube, which made based on the recommendations where you have all kinds of exercises which you can do with your hands. Brilliant, brilliant. So what, what I might do, Marguerite, is just get that link from you and include that yeah. in, the, in the show yeah. notes so that, so that people can, can go along to that. But are there any other patient-friendly resources or links that you'd like to recommend or anything that I forgot to ask that I should have? No, no, no. This is the only one I think which is very helpful. It's yeah. in English, so for people in Australia, also very helpful, I think. Excellent. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to close with just a few more general questions. And this is me, again, just being selfish and learning a little bit about you and uh, what motivates you. But I guess in the first instance, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? I really want to make a difference for the patients that I see. Uh, I'm trained as a rheumatologist and of course like many of us that are trained as rheumatologists all the attention goes to diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. I even was realizing how many people came to my outpatient clinic with hand osteoarthritis and 20 years ago I started in the it is osteoarthritis field. This was new in my department and just after 
getting some additional information and just seeing what the people with osteoarthritis in the, in, that visit us had, I realized how many people suffer from hand osteoarthritis and that it is really, now you started off with it, a forgotten disease. I even had it uh, on my radar that this is such a big problem. So this is really what motivates me now is that I want to make a difference and find some new ways for patients that suffer from this disease that is for most doctors not really they are even not aware that this is such a big problem. Well, I applaud all of your efforts and really encourage you to continue to, to stay motivated because it's an incredibly important problem that leads to a lot of disability for a lot of people. But in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis? What it's always important, I think, is keep moving. So... That's good for all rheumatic diseases, but also for people with osteoarthritis, I think. So that's really important. Yeah, sagely advice. And I think the, the importance of exercise and physical activity is germane, as you say, irrespective of what type of uh, joint disease that you have. Marguerite, really appreciate your time, the thoughts, the, the valuable contribution you make to the field. It's been wonderful to have a chance to have a chat to you about it. Okay, thank you very much for the invitation. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.